We've got a lot to do today. A lot. Um, a lot to do, so let's get busy. Very, very briefly, um, the last couple of weeks I've underscored some of the fundamental broad differences between the Protestant and Catholic worlds. And last week, um, just mentioned briefly that one is far darker than the other. And we, it, the, the way of looking at the world after the fall is, is darker and it changes the way people look at things. Um, um, we saw that very clearly in Milton, who seriously darkens the world, and Dante, who doesn't shy away from darkness. Uh, Milton wanted to change the world, but in or I mean the church, but in ways that would actually affect its dogmas. Dante didn't. Dante wasn't less critical of the world. Hell is full of Catholics and popes and um, priests. And um, Dante saw that it was essential to critique the way people live in the church, not the church itself. Its its doctrines are okay. Its leaders, priests and popes and us. We have to be careful. Um, tonight, I want to just briefly go over um, the 19th century when Hopkins is writing, because I want to look at a couple of things when we go to his poem tonight. We're going to start Wreck of the Dutchland in a, in a minute. Um, but I want to give a little bit of a, a, a background on him. And then I want to look at that handout that I gave you. Do you all remember, do you all have that brief Scansion. Um, yeah. It's two pages, I think two or three pages, three pages. Mm -hmm. the, the deal with Scansion, if you could just have that handy, it will help. And, um, and I want to look at the, um, I want to look at a, I want to look at some things having to do with prosody, just for you guys to be aware of it. So that's what we're going to do, and then we're going to get to Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales and the Knight's Tale. So there's a good bit ahead of us. Before we start, we'll do the Knight's Tale tonight. We will get through it. Um, I, it it's extraordinary to me. I have to thank you guys again, and I'm not saying this casually. Um, reading it this last week um, and finishing it just recently made me aware of what I didn't see years ago, even though there, I, I, I don't think there's anything I didn't see. I certainly didn't see the, the close connection, but we, I knew it was, I knew Boethius was there. How much I missed, but to go back over it now after doing Boethius was a remarkable experience for me because I hope to show tonight he's everywhere in it. It's like a story, looking through a story into Boethius or seeing Boethius through a story. He's, he's that present. So. It's an amazing thing, I think. Um, but so we'll get to that. But before we do, I want to uh, make clear where we're going. We're going to do Night's Tale tonight. We're going to do Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream next week. It's what I plan to do. For this reason, in Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare is dealing with the Theseus theme. And I'm trusting, even if you guys have read it, some of you may have read Midsummer Night's Dream, it's a, it's a popular play that's presented in high schools all the time in college. 
I, after tonight, I'm, and if, when you read Midsummer Night's Dream next week, you're going to read a different play because you're going to be aware of things that you would have never been aware of, and I think no, teachers would not have helped you be aware of when you last read it. But having read The Knight's Tale now and then going from Chaucer to Shakespeare, you're going to see Shakespeare dealing with the same exact theme Chaucer is and radically changing it. And one of the things I hope to show in these next two weeks is Catholicism, when it looks back to the Middle Ages, and call it Catholicism as it looks forward to the modern world. Because Shakespeare is going to take that same Theseus story and radically change it. Same story, Theseus is our founder, founder of Western civilization, but what he does with it is going to be very, very different. So it'll be interesting to see what your response to that is. So we're going to do um, Midsummer Night's Dream next week. When we return in the fall, I'm going to follow my wife's advice. We're going to do Scarlet Letter, Scarlet Letter. And maybe something else in there if anybody comes up with something, but it's not my plan right now. Scarlet Letter when we get back. No, no, sorry. We'll finish Chaucer in the fall. We'll pick up Chaucer in the fall because there will be a good number of stories. So we'll pick up where we are leaving off. We'll start Chaucer in the fall, finish Canterbury Tales. Um, we will do Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, which is Shakespeare's treatment of Rome. What in the world does that have to do with Christ? Wait and see. So we'll pick up a Chaucer, do Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Um, then we'll do Scarlet Letter, the Brothers Karamazov. Um, we're getting more and more into our world, modern world, very, very modern with um, Dostoevsky. And we'll end with T.S. Eliot's um, um, what's the murder, in, murder in the Cathedral. Isn't it Murder in the Cathedral? And it's, it's actually wonderful. Some of this just wasn't planned. What Eliot's going to do is pick up with what Chaucer does and leaves off there. Because Chaucer is going to be dealing with, Saint, I mean, indirectly, St. Thomas Beckett's murder. You know that's behind the Canterbury Tales. So Eliot's going to be, as a modern Englishman, speaking to Englishmen and the world, but more directly to Englishmen, he's going to be dealing with the death of Thomas Beckett, but in a modern sense. He knows he's speaking to an audience that's, that's not, uh, you can't take it for granted anymore, that's Christian. He's going to be talking to an England that he knows, in lots of ways, opposes the, posi the position he's going to be taking. So he's going to be speaking as a modern to all the things that we're doing. That will bring us up to our time and finish the course. You know that for most of who's already been there because we've done um, Melville and Faulkner. We did Faulkner, uh, Go Down Moses, and T.S. Eliot, um, Two We Have Faces. But we will be, we'll be returning to the modern world and we'll finish up with uh, Murder in the Cathedral. So that's what we're doing. So next week is our last class? I don't think, it will either finish next week or the week after, but it, for sure it's next week or the week after. I'm thinking the week after because what I'd like to, we'll see how it goes next week. I'd, I'd like to do Midsummer Night's Dream in that week. And if I can pull this stuff together, I will. If not, we'll do it the following week. We'll, ju we'll just see. But, Next week for sure, and either one more week or, or we take a break.
for summer and then come back in the fall. Are, are we supposed to have the bulk of Midsummer Night's Dream? It's been, we've had it, Jeannie, it's back there too. I can't remember that, whether we have it or don't. <laughs> we put it out weeks ago, but we haven't, you know, they were, we put everything out. I, I probably have it now. I just... We'll have it next, we'll have it next, well, actually, you're going to need it, so. Take a copy with you, and, and if you have one, just bring one back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought that was just my uh -uh. Oh, sorry, what am I talking about? Midsummer Night's Dream. Sorry, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Midsummer, not merchant. Sorry, if I. Midsummer Night's right. Dream is what we're doing next week. Right. Do we have that? Back there is only Merchant of Venice, right? No, that's no, 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 no. You've got both. Oh, oh, oh. Midsummer Night's Dream is in the box. Okay, okay. I'll take one. Take one. Take one. I'll bring right, and if if you've already got one, I'll bring it back. We need to is everybody clear? Next week, next week we're doing Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the Theseus story from by Shakespeare. Okay. Okay. Let's start. Um, we're going to look at um, Gerard Manley Hopkins' The Wind Tower. No. I'm oh, sorry, God bless. <laughs> Somebody help. Like oh, it's just getting, it's getting worse and worse. Just worse and worse. Oh. Makes me want to sit down and yeah. stop. God. No, you stop and you stop. Stop. God. 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 It's just getting worse and worse. We're going to look at Hopkins' The Wreck of the Dutchland. Have we done it before? The Wreck? Uh -huh. No. Karen said we have. The wreck? No. 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 We haven't. We talked about doing it. We talked about it. But we yeah, we've not, we did the wind hover and we've done a, several of his poems, but we haven't done the wreck. Or not that I remember, I don't think so. What's that whole? Because I will carry Just look on. Let's start. Then you just know more than the rest of us do. It'll just be a refresher, of course. See how many notes I put in last time. Quickly, a couple of things here, important to know. Um, Hopkins, you know, was a Jesuit priest. He was involved in the, or involved with the people who were involved in the Tractarian movement, mid-19th century. This is crucial, crucial to know, absolutely crucial to know. What was the Tractarian movement? There were a number of people who began to see, believe very strongly that the Church of England was becoming corrupt too loose, too lax, too liberal. Really, it's, it's like a prefiguring of what's going on in America. Too liberal, too soft, um, and they wanted to see the church reform. All of them were low churchmen. You can call them broad latitudinarians. Some of them were high churchmen, Anglicans. But all of them were a part of what was considered then, this is so important to see, all of them were a part of what was considered then the Church of England. And the Church of England at that time was the fruit over time of everything that began with Henry when he made himself the head of the church, and more particularly Elizabeth, because she had to try to make compromises between the Puritans, the Calvinists, and the Anglicans. The result of her compromise was called the Via Media. It was, a, it was an attempt to make a compromise. So the Church of England became this amalgam of um, an, an effort to avoid serious conflicts, 
religious battles, which had been going on for decades by that time, and reach a common ground. Okay? Um, the product of that was the Book of Common Prayers and the 39 Articles. And that was, in a sense, the, the backbone, the, the bedrock of the Church of England for the next couple of centuries. Middle of 19th century, there's a serious crisis, absolutely serious crisis. The church is in a crisis. Low churchmen, evangelicals, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Anglicans are together, but there's this disgruntled feeling. Something's happened to the Church of England. It's losing some vital spirit. So a number of people who took on that reform from within the English church, wanting simply to reform it, began to study. And when they did, they found out the problem wasn't English. It wasn't a reform within the church. They found that the problem was at the root of the English church itself. And um, when they saw that, they began, as they began to read the history of the church, they began to see that the problem that they were dealing with was what the English church had turned away from during those centuries. Henry, Elizabeth, and the divines that followed them. All of them had serious problems with the authority of the church and began to question whether the 39 articles, the Book of Common Prayers, didn't represent a schismatic movement from Rome because it denied the authority of the Pope and it really took as one of its principles its own authority. If it did that, it mean any nation, as a precedent, any nation could do the same and break off and give to that particular nation its own authority. So all of them began to see that the, one of the fundamental problems was authority, um, a central unified authority that was greater than a national identity. The result of that was Newman converted, John Henry Newman, and along with a number of other divines, some of those people, who never intended to convert. They wanted to reform the church. So what happened then represented a real crisis because some of the most intelligent people in the century began to leave the Church of England. Hopkins was aware of that. He was younger then, but he knew what was happening when he grew up, and he reached a point of doing the same thing. Almost all of the people who made that conversion were looked at on, by the Englishmen as infidels, and I'm not exaggerating this at all. They looked at, they, I've got, I mean, if you read some of this stuff, you, 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 I mean, it sounds so much like today. They, they called people who opposed them. Um, they looked at, they, they tended to look at Catholics as these treacherous secret society people who were doing these horrible things to people. There's one particular account of a guy named Achille who had been a Catholic, um, but who had been under house arrest by the church for sexual abuses. And the evangelicals got a hold of him and managed to get him free and asked him to speak on, in support of anti-Catholic movements that were popular, really popular at the time. Newman is writing during this time, and what he's making clear is that what happened with that break from Rome is a bigotry that became established. That was the position he took. You can imagine he was wildly attacked everywhere. I mean, he looked at somebody who was betraying his English character. Um, um, Achilles would looked at a hero, <laughs> even even though um, he talked he talked about he talked about the abuses of the Catholic Church when he was in prison or uh, sorry under house arrest, 
and made all these other outrageous claims. There was there was a libel suit finally that followed. It, it was it got really ugly. But so this is what's going on in mid nineteenth century. And by the way, just so you don't miss it, this is the time of Charles Dickens. A little bit early, but but again, it's a little bit a little bit before Victorian. But um, Dickens, Thackeray, um, Trollope, it's moving towards Victorian England, and you'll get to the the people who are the artists who are it's the, it's the um, period of the pre-Raphaelite painters. Um, there's a lot going on in England right now that, and part of the his the, the historical context is this time of crisis in the church. Okay. Hopkins is um, a young man during this time. He reaches adulthood. He's in an Anglican family. His, his family's deeply Anglican. When he starts reading in the history of the church, he comes to a point where he, he realizes the same thing that Newman did, that the serious question has to do with authority and, um, and what happens when a nation cuts itself off and um, strikes at the unity of the church. And at some point he realized that he, it was impossible for him to go back to the Anglican faith. That's what he was raised in. It was a terrible time for him and his family, as you could imagine, same way it was for Newman and others. Breaks everywhere. Just, it's a time of historical crisis, personal crisis. It's in that context that he writes. He, when he converts, shortly after his conversion, he chooses to enter the priesthood. He becomes a Jesuit. And he's so committed to the faith because he's begun to see things he didn't before. And he's so committed to the priesthood that one of the first things that he does um, after becoming a priest is burn all of his poems. Burn them. Because in his mind they were getting in the way. Shortly after his priesthood, his, uh, no, just shor actually shortly before he becomes a priest, he writes his poem, The Wreck of the Deutschland. There's a passage in here, I want to look at it in a second, in which you're aware that he's either taking vows or he's in a spiritual, an Ignatian spiritual exercise in which he feels himself close to taking vows because it's an overwhelming moment for him. We'll see it in the poem. But that's the context, and it's important to see because two things are going to become obvious when we do the poem. One is that the, the, the nuns who were forced to leave their convent because of the laws in Germany that, that um, took away the church lands and forced the Catholics out, they were forced to leave their home. They left the north of Germany and were heading to America. And as they passed the North Sea going west, to go up around the aisles, they were drawn into a current that took them towards the Thames, and they hit a sandbank, and the ship held in a storm, and the five nuns were killed. When Hopkins read this in the newspaper, he was devastated. He's back with Boethius. Why does God allow that to happen? That these nuns should be killed because of these stupid laws, persecuting laws, confiscating properties, Disen, um, disenfranchising the Catholics. Um, and the second is, you'll see when we read the end of the poem, the poem ends with a prayer asking for the conversion of England, the return. One of the interesting side notes to this, if you read into this, it's really interesting, you'll see it. Um, 
after, shortly after Henry um, declared, made the break from Rome and declared himself the head of the Church of England on, on dogmatic matters, and that separated himself from Rome, was that, um, that Jesuits, this is really interesting, a group of Jesuits came to England secretly because the Jesuits were outlawed in the hopes of trying to bring England back into the fold. I mean, that was their mission. They were soldiers. They were persecuted, killed, and um, the, shortly afterwards, and what you may all have heard of the gun plot. Gunpowder. Gunpowder plot. Um, it, not all the details are clear, but it seems fairly clear that Catholic, some radical, zealous Catholics were involved in this attempt to blow up the crown. And, I think some Jesuits were involved in it. My, my history gets fuzzy around that, but I think they were. But the Jesuits continued to do what they set out to do, and they became outlawed by England. When England finally um, legislated that um, Catholic Emancipation Act in the 19th, 19th century, I think, late 19th century, early 20th century, major change for England, they specifically excluded the Jesuits. Um, so the Jesuits are, are, are in order hated in England. I mean, they just, and, um, so this is a time of radical division in England. Um, it, there's a much greater tolerance today than there was, say, 50 years ago. But there's still this disease among Catholics and Protestants in England. Hopkins is writing in this context, okay? Now, very, very quickly, take out your, that prosody section, because I want to show you this. For those of you who love music, for those of you who love music, I'm going to do this very briefly because it's not our point, but English poetry up until the time of the Norman conquest was alliterative. Alliterative means alliteration. It means a strong stress on initial consonants. Okay? Friendless founding. Um, cocky coxswain. Things like that. Alliteration simply means emphasizing initial consonants in a line. That's all it means. So the measure, because all poetry consists of, it has an underlying musical element, all of it. It's the nature of poetry, you all know that. Alliterative verse distinguishes itself by virtue of the fact that it rests on strong stresses, alliteration. So the number of syllables is indefinite. One line can have 10 syllables, another line can have 20. There would be no irregularity. The, what the lines have in common is the number of stresses. So there's a common measure, okay? Syllabic verse, which enters the English language after the Norman Conquest, because in the Norman Conquest, French influences are introduced into England, and the French had a syllabic measure. So what happens in syllabic, so in alliterative, remember it's, it's, it's usually, in most alliterative, Beowulf has this form. Alliterative verse has 
a certain number of alliterative stresses, strong stresses, but it can have any number of syllables. So one line can have, let's say, three syllables with two stresses, and another half of the line can have ten syllables. It doesn't matter. The number of syllables is irrelevant. The mate, what gives the line its musical quality is the number of um, stressed consonants. Okay? Syllabic verse is different. Syllabic verse, which is the traditional English verse, has the same number of syllables. One, two, three, four. The traditional English verse is iambic pentameter. Pentameter, um, five meters. I am is a rising syllable. <coughs> a rising syllable means unstressed stress. Okay, like this. Unstressed stress, unstressed stress. Okay. Just to make this clear, is is rock. So, the traditional line in English is a rising foot. The opposite of that is a falling foot. Mm -hmm. Right. Rising is unstressed stress. The opposite is stress on stress. Is Robert um, iambic or trochaic? Iambic is rising, trochaic is falling. Hmm? Robert would be falling. Good for you. What about Gita? Huh? Gita? Gita. Oh, it depends how you pronounce them. No, Gita. <laughs> no. <laughs> These rebels in the family. No. You can't just be what you want. Gita, is it rising or falling? Falling. Oh. Right. Falling. Gita. It, we say Gita? Oh, Gita. Right? Or right. Gita. Okay, falling. Falling, yeah? What about Karen? <laughs> Mary. Mary? Yeah. Chester. Michael. Oh, Marcy. Oh, yeah, good, good. Most, most names, most names in English are trochaic. You, you're following me, I hope, right now. Um, can anybody think of a rising? How about... Suzanne. Um, oh, wait, wait. You be still. <laughs> you already know. You be, how about Suzanne? Oh, wait, how, yeah, how about Suzanne? Susanna? Okay. No, Suzanne. 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 That's well, put that against, hold up. Susan. Which? Susan. Following. Suzanne? Rising. You all following now? Yeah. Okay, so the, the traditional line in English is five feet of iams, rising. And you know from the work we've done that, that poets know that. They've got, they've got an ear better, at least as good as musicians. That's what they do with words. They're aware of that, so they can play variations. They can invert the first, first foot. They can invert several feet. They can make a couple of feet spondies where you get strong stresses repeated. What if you have three syllables in your name like Roberta? <laughs> well, I mean, here, so, so here, Roberta, let's see, Roberta. So let's just say a poet was doing that. A poet would go, Roberta, duh, and it would carry over and be followed by a stress. So something Roberta did, I'm just, I'm off the top of my head now, but 
Because, do you see, what they're doing is staying to a major. If, if you're a musician, you know, if you, any of you have done music, you got a four, if you've got a 4-4 four, four count, yeah. you've got a certain number of beats every major, 4-4. Four, four. And sometimes it can consist of quarter notes, four quarter notes, or two half notes, yeah. but the major is constant, right? And really good musicians play with that. So they can do amazing things with a 4-4 four, four count, even in one major. I'm trusting you all know this. Poets do the same thing with syllables, with words. So even with something like Roberta, um, they could easily fit that into an iambic line. By pick, Roberta did, and then you've got, see? But they can also invert it. They do that because that's a way of giving stress, counterpoint, um, to call attention to things, to make us feel things. Poets do that all the time, okay? So, that's the traditional verse in English. Syllabic. Syllabic. Shakespeare writes in syllabic verse. So does Milton. What, what they do with lines is pretty amazing. I mean, we didn't break it down because it's not our, not our purpose here. Um, by the time of the 19th century, English language, after Shakespeare and Milton, the English language is dying. Truly, I'm saying that honestly. The Romantic poets try to re revive it. The 18th century poets, I don't, I don't think much of the 18th century, so I'm not going to go there, but the Romantics are trying to revive it. Mid-19th century, poetry's in a crisis. Hopkins comes to his own in that time, and he loves the English language. So what Hopkins does is go back to alliterative verse and adopts it into English. What he accomplishes, by the way, every poet worth his name always uses the language of his time to speak to a people, whether it's Virgil or Homer, Shakespeare, it doesn't matter. Keats, it does not matter. Robert Frost is a perfect example. A poet who doesn't speak with the language of his time will be out of tune as a poet with his people. Because a poet, as I've been presenting, is speaking for his people. He's trying to reveal, reveal things, to give a voice to things that so many of us feel but don't have a voice for ourselves. It's been a, one of the elements of poetry. We, f we find people saying things we have felt but could have never expressed, and then we read it and say, holy cow, it's what I was feeling. Couldn't say it. Yeah. So, poets give a, a feeling because of what they do with music, with their power of words. So, every poet speaks for his age. Hopkins is living mid-19th century. Poetry is in a serious crisis, by, and by the way, at a time of religious crisis. That's not an accident. Every great poet has had a depth that takes us beyond what most people think. So, I don't think that's an accident. I think they're correlated. What he does at that time, because he loves the English language and he knows it's dying, the, the poets who are writing who are trapped in these conventions. It's like watching painting and seeing the painters paint the same way over and over and over, and you're waiting for somebody to do something new to revitalize painting or music. Yeah, are you off? Am I going too fast here? 
what Hopkins does is go back because when he goes back, he sees that there's this tremendous treasury of resources in in ancient English, in a litter of verse. He goes back to Beowulf, the Anglican or the Anglo um, early um, Anglo-Saxon poetry, and he begins to incorporate and adopt techniques that were available then that the English language had lost. So what we hear in Hopkins is this combination of strong alliterative verse combined with syllabic verse. Is that clear? I want, I want to be clear before I go on. Is everybody clear? And please ask a question if it's not clear. We okay? Okay, take a look at that scansion thing. That short one or the big, big one, whichever you've got. Go to the page with Robert Frost's lines. <clears throat> I thought I had it. Oh, here, on page three. Does everybody have it, page three? Middle of the page. Now, I want everybody to turn away from the page, just for a second. I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look at the words. I want you to hear me. Stopping by Woods is one of his most favorite poems. It's not iambic pentameter, it's iambic tetrameter. It's got four feet. So it's exactly this. Four feet of iambs, okay? Now remember, because I've said this before, when you're reading poetry and it's iambic, let's, let's say it's here, it's iambic tetrameter, you never go da 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 da. You don't read da 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 da. Whose woods these are, I think I know. You do not read poetry that way. You read it rhetorically, knowing that while you're reading it, there's this underlying music, this melody. And the two very often play off in counterpoint. That's a tension the poet uses in his music. Okay? So I want to read these lines because it's an example of an iambic measure. And I want you to hold that in your mind when I start reading Hopkins. Okay? So you hear the difference. Okay? Now remember, you're not reading... Whose woods these are, I think I know his house. You do not read that way, you read rhetorically. You read for the meaning. When Frost, when Frost was a poet, he was also a school teacher teaching English, and he used to test kids on how well they read poetry by asking them to read orally to see if they would read rhetorically, because he knew that's how you're supposed to read. Now this happens to be a poem that's very typical of Frost's work. Frost is what we call a poet writing in the hard pastoral. He always presents this placid pastoral, farmland, agrarian surface, but under the surface, he's showing a very, very dark world. This poem happens to be about suicide. It's a man coming to a dark woods. He's contemplating giving up his life. And he decides not to do it and goes away. Suzanne and I were shopping, this is years and years ago, we went into a store and found it on a Hallmark Christmas card. <laughs> Wait, I'm just, that's how easy it is to misread Frost. People think they, you know, people, we've been, I've been saying this for years, we think we read well. That poem's about suicide. But it's got this pa beautiful pastoral service description, coming to a woods, how, but the, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep. It's a seductive moment. He's thinking about giving up his life and then decides, no, he's not going to do it. But I have miles and miles to go before, before, I, before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So some people, I, I hope this is hitting home. 
We think we read well. We think we see surfaces so well. People put down a Christmas card. It drove me nuts. People look at just the surface. I know. I know. I know. I know. So anyway, just to let you know, this, this is a, a typical Frost poem. It presents this beautiful lyric pastoral world, but underneath it, there's a dark meaning. That's at the heart of what he did. It's what made him a great poet. Now, I don't even look at it. I want you to just hear the words because I'm going to go immediately from this to Hopkins so you can hear what Hopkins would have called sprung rhythm because for him, he wanted a language that wasn't determined by an even number of syllables but by a springing. So for Hopkins, the, the foot for him was an accent. But one foot could have seven syllables, another could have three, another could have five. What he wanted was to try to catch it's like this vital life springing in the world, <clears throat> captured with language. So it's a radical new kind of music in English poetry. What he did was a remarkable innovation that has carried forward into the modern world. Like syncopation. Hmm? Like syncopation. I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just so long as you know, there's always a measure. You know, it, it, it doesn't vary, but there's tremendous variation within it. Okay, so I want, now I'm going to do this and then jump to Hopkins without a word. I just want you to have that in your mind, okay? Frost, whose woods these are. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. I'm trusting you all didn't hear whose woods these are. I, I read it rhetorically. Yeah? When the line moves on, I move on. When the line slows down, I slow down. It's exactly what a musician does with his music. Okay? Now let's do the rec. I'm going to do the first 10 stanzas and then stop for tonight. And what I'm going to do is try to hold my comments until next week. I will look back. So I'm going to leave these with you to contemplate. And then I'm going to do the same thing next week. Okay. What Hopkins is going to do is describe his own personal anguish, his own personal crisis, because he's moving into the church and it coincides with this event when these five nuns went down in the ship because of these laws. It is such a grievous moment to him that it forces him to ask this question, how could God let this happen? It's exactly Boethius's question. Except now we're getting it from a man who's entering the priesthood and who is anguishing over his response to what in his mind was something tragic. <coughs> Wreck of the Dutchland. To the happy memory of the fine Franciscan nuns Exiles by the Falk Laws, drowned between midnight and morning of December 7, 1875. First part. O mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway of the sea, Lord of the living and dead. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade, what with dread thy doing. Dost thou touch me afresh? Over I feel, over again, I feel thy finger and find it. 
I did say yes, O oh, at lightning and lashed rod, thou hurtest me truer than tongues confess thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, alter an hour and night, the swoon of a heart, the sweep and the hurl of thee, trod hard down with the horror of height. And the stiff in the midrift, a strain with learning of, laced with the fire of stress this internal anguish that's going on in him. The frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind. Where? Where was it? Where was a place? I whirled out wings that spell and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. Can't find any way to turn, and then turns to the host, to Christ. My heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, I'm bold to boast. To flash from the flame to the flame then, tower from the grace to the grace. I am soft sift in an hourglass, at the wall fast, but mind with emotion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fall. Remember in an hourglass, hours, the, the grain stands tight to the edge. It's firm. You watch an hourglass and everything in the middle, collapse. It's like an image of our sins, but he's also liking it to a well with water and the way veins from a mountain go down into it too. So, I'm soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast but mined with emotion adrift and it crowds and it combs to the fall. I steady as water in a well to a poise to a pain but roped with always all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the vole a vein of the gospel proffer, a pressure, a principle, Christ's gift. I kissed my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight, wafting him out of it, and glow, gore, glory, and thunder. Kiss my hand to the dappled with damson west. That's apps, that that con combination of adjectives is um, Anglo, um, early Anglo poetry. That's where he gets it. <clears throat> Kiss my hand to the dappled with damps and west. Since though he's under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stress, stressed. For I greet him in the days I meet him and bless him when I understand. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor from heaven and few notice swings the stroke dealt. Stroke and a stress that stars and storms deliver, that guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt, that it rides time like riding a river, and hear the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. There are these two terms I'm going to come to next week called um, inscape and stress. Inscape is the pattern of the thing. They're, all things have it. The oak, all oaks have an oak pattern in them to make them oaks. We've talked about this before. And all things have this stress. It's like this energy from God in being, everything that keeps us in. But all of us feel it like a stress. We all know it. We live it daily. It's there. Um, but it rides time like a riding a river, and here the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. It dates from the day of his going in Galilee, warm laid grave of a womb life gray, manger maiden's knee, the dense and driven passion and frightful sweat, thence the discharge of it, 
there its swelling to be, though felt before, though in high flood yet, what none would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay, only when we've got our backs up against the wall, sadly, do we know it. Is out with it. Oh, we lash with the best or worst word last. How a lush cap, plush cap slew, will, mouth to the flesh, burst, gush, flesh, demand. The bean with it, sour or sweet, brim in a flash full. Hither then, last or first, to the hero of Calvary, Christ's feet. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. Be adored among men. God, three-numbered form, ring thy rebel dogged in den, man's malice with wrecking and storm, how much evil we bring to what we do. Beyond sane, sweet, past telling of tongue, thou art lightning and love, I found it a winter and warm, father and fondler of heart thou hast wrung, hast thou dark, hast thy dark descending and most art merciful then. With an anvil ding and with fire in him, forge thy will, or rather, rather than stealing a spring through him, melt him, but master him still. Whether at once, as once at a crash, Paul or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill. That is, instantaneously as it was with Christ when, I mean with Paul when Christ knocked him off his horse, to make his conversion or the long one with St. Augustine, because you know St. Augustine kept saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. <laughs> his lusts were too wide open. Um, whether at once, as once at a crash Paul, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill, make mercy in us, in all of us, out of us all. Mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. <clears throat> Just to show you a, a, a metrical innovation. Take a look at the bottom of page two. To the he look, look at this closely. I, I know that there are things that musicians do, the real Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, would, would do this with sounds. With, with, with. The hero of Calvary, Christ's feet. Look at Christ, because it's, it's an appositive modifying feet, but the, but the, the the modifier of feet is Calvary, but Christ interrupts it, and notice there's, a, there's an, um, a comma before the apostrophe. Has everybody seen that? <clears throat> Think about it. I mean, the, that, there's that compound where he's making a compound of things, but to do it, he has to break grammar. It, it's sort of the sort of thing when you, you first experience, if you're reading Faulkner for the first time, and you want to go nuts because he won't stop a sentence. Um, Hopkins is doing things with language in order to achieve certain musical effects that almost have not been done. Um, so he's describing this, this awareness that God is master of all things and um, all that God is doing to try to draw him to him. That's all a preparation for what's going to begin in, the, in, the, in stanza 11 in the second part, because in the second part, he's going to give us what happened to the ship and to the nuns and everybody else who died on it. Okay. So we're into one of the hardest poems in the English language. If anybody wants to take a wine break. <laughs> Thank you.
can make a copy of this one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I did this is because my fingers had become numb, so it's not. It's hard for me to put a brush on it. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I've been waiting for you all night. I I am. I'm gonna I'll, so you guys struggle with this and we'll pick it up again next week. Close. <laughs> <laughs> I opened the hard one. <laughs> oh, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Where's Mark? Let's let's start again. Let's pick up. We've got a lot to do. Chaucer, he was born in 1342, died in 1400. The background is pretty straightforward. He was born into a, something of a poor family. It wasn't wealthy. But early on, he was sent to school and made a page of um, John of Gaunt, who was in the aristocracy. The, uh, the Duke of Lancaster, who had close ties to the king. And because of his abilities, he was um, elevated to the number of positions and finally became a courtier. And it was at court that he learned his manners, his love of manners. When you read, when you read his stories, you, you can tell how much he loves manners. He makes fun of them all the time, but he practices them himself. Um, a couple of things to know about the Canterbury Tales as a whole. That there are two things that I just want to emphasize before we look at Knight's Tale. One is that part of the power and beauty of what Chaucer has done lies in the universality of his theme, the, the Catholicity of his theme. It's absolutely crucial to see. What he's showing us is the, the universal nature of faith in England at that time. This is 1400. Everybody in the Canterbury Tales is, um, they're on their way, all of them are on their way to the shrine of Thomas Becket. He was martyred centuries before. So what he's doing is showing two things in this voyage, this adventure. He's showing that all people share the same faith. What ties them together, no matter what their rank is, because everybody's there, knights, priests, monks, Poor people, men, women, all of England is there. The, the, the only thing that's missing really is royalty, but it's represented in some way. So in one sense, he's giving us a picture of all of England, but it's England united. They're sharing a faith. They're going on this pilgrimage to Thomas Becket's shrine. Um, so those two things tie the Canterbury Tales together. It's interesting to see this, particularly if you see him before Shakespeare and relate him to Shakespeare. Because at least as I look at him, it seems to me he's creating a world that Shakespeare is aware of and that helps prepare for him. Shakespeare had to learn a lot from Chaucer, not just in verse, but 
the way he looked at the world. Chaucer's theme is universal. He's going to look at a united England, an England united by its faith. When you get to the time of Shakespeare, you're, this is what we're going to do next week when we look at Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare's um, isn't showing us a united England. As a matter of fact, when he deals with the history plays and some of the English histories, he shows in England torn apart. Um, there are all these battles over succession and power and classes. Um, he's doing everything he can to lead up to the Tudor regime. But at the same time, he's showing every, this is what's so crucial about Shakespeare, he's showing every essential regime in the West before the Roman Empire breaks up, or, or while the Roman Empire is breaking up. So he's got three, three, four plays actually, but three major plays on Rome, Coriolanus, Anthony Cleopatra, Julius Caesar. He's got three major poems on Greece, Time of Athens, um, Midsummer Night's Dream, and what am I missing? Time in Trails of Cressa. Three Greek plays. <clears throat> He's got plays set in France, in Spain, um, um, in Italy. He wrote as many plays in Italy as he did in England. He's a, he, he is the English poet of his century. He wrote as many plays in England as he did in Italy. Othello, Merchant of Venice, you can go on as you... Um, sorry? Yep, yep. Um, it, it goes on. Um, because he knew of the importance of the Italian Renaissance for the rest of Europe. Remember, the, the Renaissance starts in Italy. That's, that's the, it's the struggle between church and state and the development of these new communes they're going to change the face of Europe. He knows that. So he's looking at individual regimes when, when the Holy Roman Empire in this feudal world is collapsing. So in a sense, God, it's just amazing. What he's doing is helping to prepare us for the modern world. He's doing for us what Dante did under very different circumstances. So when you look at Shakespeare, I, I would say that he's as universal as Chaucer, but in a very, very different way. He's looking to the whole of a Western world about to collapse and change its character. So he's exploring all these regimes. He's going back to Greece and Rome to show what they gave us, all these modern regimes, and he does all the history plays. The, the two um, um, Henrys, the... Yeah, all of them, yeah. So, um, very different. But at least at this point, it's important to see that what Chaucer's doing is showing a united, all of England present, sharing a faith on their way to, to make a pilgrimage um, to this shrine. Now, the Knight's Tale. Now, one comment before we start, because this is so crucial. I love this story, absolutely love it. Um, on the surface, it's a terribly simple poem, story. If you've read it, it, you know how simple, it's, it's absolutely simple. I, it's much simpler than Boethius in some ways. It's a very simple poem. Um, but I'm going to say about this what I said about Boethius. It, underneath the surface, this is the work of a genius, again. I mean, the depth of his perception of things is just amazing. So on the surface, it looks like an easy poem. It's absolutely rich in meaning in what he does. Some of the important things to keep in mind when you read The Knight's Tale. Chaucer is doing with The Knight's Tale what every great poet that we've read so far has done. 
He goes back to the past. He's taking Theseus, who's the founder of Western civilization. He's treating him as the subject of the very first poem in the Canterbury Tales. And he's doing something with it that the ancient world could never have done. So he's carrying the past forward. That's absolutely Catholic. You do not disown the past with its corruptions. You transform them. You bring something to them that the past didn't bring. So he's doing something with the past that the past the pagans could never have done. I hope to show that tonight. So he's in keeping with all the great poets that we've been talking about. Homer, Virgil, Dante. We did it with Shakespeare before, but we're going back to Chaucer now. He's also carrying the past forward in another major way in what he does with Boethius. It's impossible, really, I'm going to show this in a minute. It's impossible to read this poem without seeing Boethius everywhere in it. It's almost like you're looking through a story and seeing Boethius. Truly, it's just stunning to see it. Major theme of the Night's Tale, absolutely major theme. We saw, it. there's not a poet that we've dealt with that did not deal with this theme. Those of you who've been with, you know, doing this for three years will know it. One of the great themes of all poetry is the city. It's the matrix in which everything that's important to us goes on. It's more important the family, because the family so often shaped by it in the way the family cannot see. There are other things going on in our world beyond our family that are forming us, but in some ways are more powerful than the family. It makes for so many conflicts in the family. How is the city important? <clears throat> when the book opens, Theseus has just defeated the Amazons. It's a different community. It's women whose associations with themselves are more important than men. Not only more important, they look at men as enemies. I hope, I hope everybody's aware how alive the Amazons are today in America. It's not a separate country. The Amazon communities have been with us. They were there in the beginning. They're here now. They're women who bind together in their hatred of men. So one of the first things that happens, we're not present, but he makes it clear, he has defeated the Amazon. His response to it was to marry the queen. So one of the conditions for everything going on forward, moving forward in this, is Theseus conquering the woman. The female. However unpleasant that is to modern ears, the play rests on it. He's overcoming a tension, or he could not deal with the sexual tensions that make up this story. Because as you know, that's, it, it drives the story. It's Palamon's and Arcita's love for Emily that drives the story. What we see here, and it's going to be reinforced in a minute, you'll see, is that in overcoming the feminine, he's overcoming something in women that's far more delicate, far more noble than men. In fact, it's the nobility of thieves that makes for its dangers as a city. Okay? Now hold on to that for a second, because that might be new to you guys. Those of you who've done Oedipus, you know the Oedipus story, Oedipus, Oedipus, um, Antigone, and Oedipus with Colonus. If you've done um, Aeschylus, but stay with Sophocles for a minute. If you know the Sophocles stories, you know that it starts in Thebes with noble lines, people who are born into noble lines because they have this noble sensibility. They always carry this inordinate pride, this great pride of a noble line. 
Um, so Thebes has, or sorry, Theseus has just defeated Thebes, the noble city, conquered it, um, and brought it into Athens. Because one of the differences, what Athens brought to the world was to overcome that inherent nobility that was so often the source of conflicts in the world, the noble standing above every, everybody else. That, that noble, the, the pride of nobility. So he, over, who overcame, he overcame the Amazons, he overcame the Thebians. We don't get those battles, but they're the conditions for going ahead in the story. Two of the survivors of that battle with Thebes are Palamon and Arce, and Hippolyta and Emily all are taken to Athens, so they're drawn into a world. One of the differences between Thebes and Athens then, Thebes is the noble city, the city of royal blood. It's full of royal pride. We're going to see that worked out in all the battles here. Athens is far more democratic. It's far more ordinary. It makes a place for everybody. But the condition of Athens is to get rid of that nobility because when it's there, it's destructive. So those noble passions. So one of the major tensions, uh, tensions of the story, it's buried, but it's there underneath everything, is this tension between two ways of life how they define people. Theseus represents the founding in Athens, the democratic city, because it's answering the extremes of these other cities. That's a condition for everything that happens. Now let me stop there because it's a given of the story. It's the, it's the condition on which everything's going to go ahead. So it's not obvious, but, but it's there. Before I go any farther, anybody, any questions about that? Because it's going to, it's going to, frame that's going to color the way we look at the more obvious themes that take place in the story. Okay? At the beginning is the male overcoming the female, the dangers of the passions, the finer nobility that women have, Hippolyta, even, even Emily, has, you know that, royal blood. When the whole question of marriage comes up at the end, she doesn't want to be married, she wants to remain a virgin. So we're going to come to that. But. So there's, there are these hidden differences between the sexes that's very much a, a part of Chaucer's treatment of marriage and sexuality in this story, okay? This is not a simple story. On the surface it looks simple. Underneath it's profound. Any questions before we go on? By the way, Shakespeare's going to do the same thing. When we get to Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus is very democratic. Hippolyta, very noble, very fine, very refined. She's, she's, she's got that refinement of a woman who does not want to see harm come to people. You'll see it when we get there. Her attitude towards the, the mechanics who want to put on this play is they shouldn't suffer like this. Theseus' response is let them go. What, what they lack? This is what they lack, we'll make up for ourselves. So the sexual tension, still there in both of them. They're going to deal with it explicitly. It runs everywhere through Shakespeare. He does not skirt difficult problems. He does not. Okay, this, the theme of the city. The major themes of the, explicitly of the story itself. The tension between law and mercy, um, think about all, all the issues dealing with justice, law. 
Palamon in our seat. No, wait, there's a question of justice between a politan Theseus. He conquers her between Athens and Thebes. Um, he takes the two Thebians, they're of royal blood. Um, he doesn't kill them, he takes them and makes them perpetual prisoners. They're in jail as a matter of justice. One of them is released, Arcetes is released, you know, and Palamon is kept there. Um, Arcete will violate the terms of his freedom. He'll put on disguise and come back. Palamon will escape. You know, the two men are going to fight. So both of them are in violation of the law. They both could be killed. Um, Theseus is going to kill them, and the women say, no, don't. They're far more compassionate. And you know that it's um, because of that appeal that he doesn't execute the men, and we go forward to the joust that ends the story. But all along there are these questions of justice, um, how to treat these prisoners. He could have killed both Arcete and Palamon. He did not. He showed a mercy towards them and took them as prisoners. So they're under the law of Athens while they're there for a good while in prison. Um, the theme of sexual love, it's major, obviously. But there are two things to see. Most people, most teachers, scholars who deal with this, deal with the theme of amour courtois, courtly love. Everybody treats that as the major theme of the book. It shows you how, in some ways, how they don't read. What's not looked at is the fact that um, Theseus conquers Apilita. There's something outside the amour courtois that it's actually a means of critiquing if you put the two together. Because what Theseus does with her um, escapes all the nasty passions that catch up the men and Emily. It, what drives that amour courtois as you watch it is this an absolute passion on the part of men that's awakened by the beauty of a woman. That they're so overcome by her that they they fall immediately in love with her and are ready to kill themselves over her. Their passions are so strong. The very nature of amour courtois was this, that amour courtois, courtly love, existed outside of marriage because it was understood that in marriage, a husband and wife owe obedience. Well, still today for anybody who takes God seriously, because the commandment from God was husband or husbands obey God, wives obey your husband. So there's this accepted obedience. And because it's there, the whole question of the passions gets dropped aside. So what happens in Amour Courtois is those passions are open. The very nature of it is the, the lords are going to love a woman who was generally married and swear their allegiance to her. It didn't, wasn't always, but it, typically it was a married woman, or often it was a married woman, so it involved adultery. But the very nature of that love was that the, the man would devote himself to the woman as a vassal to his lord, that he was ready to give his life, sacrifice everything for her. And you know that from the two men, because in the opening scenes, they both declare their love. They're ready to die for her. As a matter of fact, they're ready. So two brothers or cousins who are allied by noble, by noble bloodline in the face of love turn on each other to kill. That's how strong the passion of love is. 
That's what the passions can do. So whatever we do when we look at the themes, it, you have to hold this tradition um, in tension with what goes on between Theseus and Hippolyta. I hope that's clear, because the typical approach on the part of people who read this is Amor Courtois, and they don't put it next to the other because it's not modern, it's not, it's not easy to look at. So the, 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 the theme of sexual love um, is right at the heart of this poem. <clears throat> Both men fall within that Amour Courtois, courtly love tradition. Um, as soon as they see Emily, they fall in love with her. They declare their love and they're ready to fight each other. And it leads to what we can only call the problem that Boethius presents in Consolation, because both of them are in jail, un in their minds unfairly. They love this woman. They want to desire her. Our seed is released. Um, Palamon grieves because he thinks his cousin, now that he's out, he can go back to Thebes and start a revolution and come back and defeat God. <laughs> what happens to your imagination when you're in love? I mean, picture this, because this Chaucer knows about that. He, he imagines all these things because he, now he feels threatened that his, that his cousin is out and he's in a better chance to get Emily than he is. A friend, comes, a friend of Theseus comes and, and frees him. At the same time, Arcide is out and you know that the conditions of his freedom is he can never come back to Athens. So he goes back to Thebes, he puts on a disguise and comes back and he becomes, he ends up becoming Emily's page. So he sees her every day, but he can't do anything either. And the question, I want to get to in a sec, the question um, Chaucer leaves us with at the end of book one is, which lover suffers more than the other? I want to get to that in a second. But those are the major themes um, along with this one. You almost cannot read a, a page without coming across the word fortune or destiny or providence. And you remember when we read Boethius, that Boethius, Lady Philosophy reached the point where she said, there is nothing that goes on in the world that isn't under the control of God. Yeah? You remember? And this line I underscored, this is um, on page 111, it's in book four, um, section six. Do you now see what the consequences of what we've said, the conclusion that we've arrived at, because a good God made this universe, he's behind everything? All fortune is certainly good. And he says, after all this work, how can that be? I mean, he's been leaving. But remember that line, all fortune is good. And I remember underscoring it for this reason. Remember, Boethius, Lady Philosophy, described what goes on with respect to fortune as this. That there are all these things that seem to be a matter of random chance. And she gave that definition from Aristotle showing that such is not the case. We live in a contingent world where there are freedoms, even though the, or the world is ordered. And very often, things can intersect. And she gave the she gave the example of the man burying the gold and the man digging. There are two purposeful actions that result in the guy uncovering it. Um, <clears throat> but what she is attempting to make clear is chance then is not a matter of just random stuff. Um, it's, it's something unexpected. Okay, because it, it doesn't fall within the purposes of those two other 
lines of causality. There's two lines of causality, right? And they intersect and it produces another. What she's making clear, in an, and I think in an amazing way, is in a world in which contingency exists, in which people are free to do something, God is at work doing something to bring something out of them. Because if God is good, and he's omniscient and omnipotent, and he still wants to protect our free will, he's going to allow for human choices while he's doing something. So even when men can commit evil acts, he's doing something to turn that evil into good. Because there is nothing that isn't good in him. Okay? She, she's trying to answer this notion that if God sees everything, then men don't have free will, that everything's determined. And she's making clear that that can't be. So, in this world, interesting, we've got two order, like the circle, remember the still point and the, the circumference? What she called providence, where there is no foresight for God because he just sees. And everything on the circumference that represents everything in sequence in time, which has a beginning or a past and a present and a future. She makes clear the difference between what she calls providence and fate. People in fate are caught up by chance things, so they're too often caught up in the past, they get trapped there, they don't live in the present, they're looking forward, you know. But the most important thing is this present moment, this continuous present, because it's that present moment that links us to the present as God sees it. The closer we get to the center, the closer we approach the simplicity of God. The more we're on the surface, the more caught up in the world we are, the more governed we are by a world of fate. Our jobs, our careers, money, wealth, pride, position, power, all the things that she went through. Okay? So watch this because it's interesting to me, if you follow what happens in the story, you've got these minor gods, Venus for Palamon, Mars for our seat, and Diana, the god of virginity, goddess of virginity for um, Emily. All of them are working within their own world, and yet something is happening above them. It's Saturn doing something those gods can't see. So symbolically, Chaucer's showing us that in a, a sub-world, all these things are taking place, certain things are said. Remember the god of Mars, when, when a seat prays, says, victory's going to be yours? He is. But he doesn't see the irony of it. We will at some point because there's something higher than those minor gods see and that human beings see. So just like Boethius, he's making us aware of differences between the way things appear and the way we interpret them and something else going on that we can't see. That's, that's working to bring good out of bad things, which is what this story is about. Okay. Let me stop because I want to look at the story now, but before I do any questions, it's a pretty remarkable story, I think. Those are the major... So when you read this story, you could think, really simple story. It is. It's so, it's so simple. But underneath, Chaucer's doing amazing things. Any questions? Is all that clear? That's a lot I know. Tracy, you weren't here in the beginning, but I want you to know we said a prayer for you. Thank you.
let everybody know we only have you for a short while. So, you have a question? No. <laughs> I don't believe you. Jeannie, mm -mm. you're not being honest either. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay, let's go on. Let's go on. The, the stories broken down into four parts, you know them. Um, the first part is the, um, the conquest of Apollota and the conquest of Thebes. Um, Theseus overcomes these two peoples and um, we return to Athens where Palamon and Arcid are in jail and see Emily. The second part has to do with um, Arcid being released and Palamon escaping. Palamon goes to this grove to hide because he's, he's escaped. Arcid is, um, is putting on a disguise. He loves Emily and he goes out to, to make this crown of flowers that he wants to give her. Think about the importance of, of fortune because it's there all again and again and again and again. So these two men, one happens to be one happens to be released, there's fortune. One happens to be kept in jail. One is released, there's fortune. One, one escapes and by accident or fortune, the two accidentally come together. So over and over and over and over again, Boethius is emphasizing this fact that there's all this chance, what appears to be chance. Chaucer. Oh, sorry, mm -hmm. God, help. <laughs> Chaucer, who did I say? Boethius. Chaucer Boethius. Because <laughs> you know, all know how much I hope, I hope you, yeah, that how much Chaucer carries Boethius in him. The third part has to do with the building of the theater, and it's important for this reason. Chaucer devotes almost an entire chapter to the building of it and the prayers. Yeah. Why? Because what this battle is about is a, is a, const, is a, a tension, a conflict dealing with justice and love. That's at the heart of it. Both men should have been executed. Yeah? By rights. They should have been killed. Even in the beginning when he conquered Thebes, he spared them in mercy. So over and over and over again, Chaucer's making clear justice and love cannot be, and mercy cannot be separated any more than for Dante. In the modern world, we want to pass justice off, be merciful. We've already said that. Mercy without justice is a disaster. I hope everybody's seen that. It's so much harder. It's much easier to overlook something, or it's much easier to be legalistic. Here's the law. Try to bring the two together. It, it is, it, to me, it's just a, at the heart of our calling, and it's, I, I, don't, I don't see it myself without a cross. That's at the center of this poem. Why does he go to all this trouble? Because what's at the heart of that battle is justice and mercy, the law and love. Both men are fighting for a law. They should have, by rights, been killed. And the justice is whoever wins, marries her. And you know what happens. And it, it throws a wrench in everything. Theseus has to suddenly be just to the terms, right, that he set down and still be merciful. So there's not a point in the story in which Theseus is not dealing with this question of justice and mercy. So this amazing theater and the fourth book deals with the battle itself and what happens.
Okay. So let me let me just try to go through quickly some of these some of these some of these scenes. Turn to page 48, 49. Do you have the verse number? No, I can keep it off. We don't have verse numbers. Do you have our translation? You're bad. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Hit her on the head. Somebody, that hard head of yours. She had a thought of her own and bought a different book. Where am I? I'm renting this tonight for whatever $16 rent costs for you. Use it, use it, because just use it tonight. Use it, it'll help you. 48. Use it, please. 48. The two minute wait. So forty six. Forty six bottom. Um, lying side by side, wearing the self same arms in blazon pride. These men belong to a noble house. The defining quality is pride. Of these Arceta was the name of one, that of the other knight was Palamon, and they were neither fully quick nor dead. By coat of arms and crest upon the head, the heralds knew for all the filth and mud, they were princes of the royal blood. We are dealing with. What page? Six four. You said forty-six before. What page? I got forty. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Is that? Is it not the same? No. Here, I'll get. Here, you keep it. I've got the same translation. I didn't know that. No, you keep it. Oh wow! Oh wow! Wow! Oh, I didn't even know. What vintage is that? This is off. Do they even have printing presses? I don't even know what I'm going to do now. <laughs> Doc, I'm going to, I'm going to have because I've got. Tell me what the pages are. I don't know what you want. <laughs> Look at. What the count? Um, what book are you in? This is the same translation. We're dealing with the same thing. You got a newer edition. I didn't know yeah, that. So two editions. Yeah. This is about three pages in from the beginning. That's oh, all I can no say. Wonder. Part one, the Night's Tale. About three pages. There's a there's a paragraph that says, that says crawling from ramsack among leaves. Do you have that? Yes. What page? Page thirty. 30? Wow. Yeah. Oh Middle, of 30. Middle of thirty. Middle of thirty. Do you have one? Middle. These two crawling. Recalcitrant. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Are you on 30? Well, here's 30. Okay. Come on, I want you guys to follow. Oh, you can okay. put them back. Okay. <laughs> Doc, help me out because I am way yeah. off. So, page 30? Page 30. Page 30. Middle, middle of 30. Middle of 30. Okay. So, I didn't know this. I'll, I'll make a. Well, not where I'm going to Middle of page three. <coughs> of these, Arceta was the Arcita was the name. Arcita was the name of one. That of the other knight was Palama. They were neither fully quick nor dead. By coat of arms and crest upon the head, the heralds knew for all the filth and mud that they were princes of the royal blood. Two sisters of the house of Thebes had borne them. Out of the heat, these pillagers had torn them. 
and gently carried them to Theseus's tent. And he decreed they should at once be sent to Athens and gave order that they be kept perpetual prisoners. He would accept no ransom for them. This was done, and then the noble duke turned homeward with his men crowned with the laurel of his victory. Chaucer so deceptive. It's like reading Frost. Frost. He's so comical. I'm, we're going to get to that at the end. What Theseus is doing, I hope it's clear, he's protecting Thebes because he knows if he lets these men survive, well, you tell me, if he lets these men survive and leaves them where they are, what's going to happen? There's going to be another war. Thebes, you think Thebes is a royal city with royal blood? Is going to let this loss go? So he, he imprisons them. Okay, Go two, two pages over. The, the paragraph, this sorrowful prisoner? 32. 32. If you could all help me, I'm grateful. Thanks. Thanks. Um, and he as he did, he blanched and gave a cry. He chanced on Emily to cast his eyes. So this is a man who's struck by the beauty of a woman. It is, it is the eternal struggle. I mean, it's been there from the beginning. As though he had been stabbed into the heart, and at the cry, Arceta gave a start and said, My cousin Palamon, what ails you? Go down. We are prisoners and shall always be. Think about that analogies here with um, Boethius. But look at this. We are prisoners and shall always be. Fortune has given us this adversity, some wicked planetary dispensation. We're going to hear this over and over again. Go down. I have been hurt this moment through the eye into my heart. It will be death to me, the fairness of the lady that I see roaming the garden yonder to and fro is all the cause, and I cried out my woe, woman or goddess, goddess, which I cannot say, I guess she may be Venus. This is Dante, We're looking at, I mean, it's not the same, but it's what happened to a man when a man sees the, the beauty of a woman. And um, Well, may she, he fell upon his knees before the still and prayed, O Venus, and he goes down, O make us free. So the torment is both of them are in jail, they both have seen this woman. As soon as our seed sees her, he says, I love her. And you know what happens. These, these were cousins, fast friends, comrades in war. They fought a common enemy in Theseus. Now they're ready to kill each other. Go down some lines. Unless I gain the mercy of her grace, unless at least I see her day by day, I am but dead. There's no more to say. So both men declare their love for her, and one of them says, I saw her first, that's Palamon. Arceta says, yeah, you didn't even know whether she was a god or human. I loved her the way she is. Wait, by the way, remember for Odysseus, there was Calypso, who was an image of the divine in woman, every woman has it, and Circe, who was that in woman which inspires sexual desire. And you've got the same thing here. Both one of them sees what's divine in her, the other one sees what's just human. And they're going to kill each other over. Now, I don't want to, I want to go on over. Um, um, a friend comes to set our seat free. It's a couple of pages on. It starts with, off went our seat upon the homeward track. 36. 36. Thanks, Doc. Go down some. <laughs> Only to see her whom I love and serve, though it were never granted to deserve her favor, would have been enough for me. You <laughs> what did he do when he was in prison? Complain. What does he do that he's now out? Complain. Complain. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, think about Boethius and everything was, he was saying, remember he said, you're, you're blaming everything. The problem isn't your conditions, it's you. Um, only to see her whom I love and serve, though it were never granted to deserve her favor, would have been enough for me. Oh, my dear cousin Palamon, he said, yours is the victory in this adventure. How blissfully you serve your long adventure in prison. Prison? No, in paradise. How happily has fortune cast her dice for you. What's wrong here? Can anybody name it? With these two men? Their love is in the wrong place. Can you flesh that out? I haven't even met her. <laughs> <laughs> Details, Mary. Details. Details, okay. I, I mean, well, no, that's good. They've had each other over something. They're envious of the other one. Sorry? They're envious of the other one. They really are. It's a pride. Their pride is in the way. Um, yours is the victory? Because you, he was in prison complaining. He's out. Now he's envious because... Palamon's back in prison, and he can see her at least, and he can't. So there's an element of pride in everything they do that colors all. They say, I love you, and neither one of them sees how that nobility in their character is getting in the way. They're ready to kill each other. They look at this. So we're back, really back in Boethius' cell when he's blaming everybody, and Boethius or Lady Floss says, stop your whining. What about brotherly love? What is that? <laughs> because a, because a woman came into the picture, <laughs> yes. And he goes, "You're and you're a knight, a worthy one, and able. That by some chance, for fortune is unstable, you may attain your desired life." I mean, and he's a, he thinks that, um, or um, our seat thinks that he may be, Palamon be able to get him. Palamon thinks that because our seat's out, he may be. So both of them are imagining these things. They're just imagined. Because they're so driven by their pride and envy. What about the woman choosing who she wants? Wait. She doesn't wait either one of them. Wait. Wait. You're getting a hate. Wait. Be patient. Be patient. So they're in, he's in jail. Wait, where's, where's, uh, where's the end of book one? Where do you have it, Doc? 39. 39. 39. So at the end of book one, we've got. You know, this question. The two men are in jail, suffering, and Boethius, the poet, has stepped back from his story to ask this question. Chaucer. 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 It's okay. It's 8.15, so... <laughs> it could be 7 o'clock in the morning when I'm wide awake. It would not matter. Yes. It's that bad. Yeah. You lovers, here's a question I would offer. Are Cedar Palamon, which had most to suffer, the one can see his lady day by day, that he must dwell in prison, locked away. The other's free. The world lies all before, but never shall he see his lady more. Judge as you please between them, you that can, for I'll tell my tale as I began. So, Chaucer, Boethius, has given a situation where both men are in prison. It's like Boethius. One gets out. and But I want to take a minute. At this point, if you were to choose, if you had to answer that question, how would you answer it? Which man is suffering more? The woman's suffering. Lee, would you, would you, would you take care of your wife here for a minute? Which, well, the question is, which of these men in prison, she's not, we're not dealing with her yet, which man is suffering more? 
because both love her, both want her. They were in jail, one's going to get out, one not. Who's suffering more? Can anybody say? Both people. Huh? Why would you say that? Because he has that freedom and yet, you know, there's no path forward to what he wants. Whereas the one who's in jail, though he sees her, it's a dead, you know, a dead end. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Suzanne said the same the thing. Here's my question to you. It's the same one. I, yes, to what you're saying. I mean, what you're saying, I think, pretty faithful. But this, if you were in Palamon's shoes in jail, you would see her every day. So the object of the love, why wouldn't it intensify the suffering? Because you're seeing her day by day, knowing that you can't have her. I'm just wondering what your response would be to that. Oh, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> I mean, I would say there's a little bit of that RC because he's, I mean, obviously that's not true. He's envious of Palamon because he's back in jail. But my question is, if you say that our seat is suffering more, my question is, um, could you say that if you thought that the guy who was there seeing her every day didn't suffer more because at least he's seeing her and that, does that not build up the torment? It's just a question. Yeah, absolutely. I just think if I had to choose, yeah, but the one guy is out, and he could go find her. Yeah. Well, on pain of death. Yeah, he's forbidden. Well, that's that's, that's, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> it's an opera. That's the way okay. that thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> go to um, oh god here. I'm hold on. I'm in sixty-seven. This is um, towards the end of part three. This is when remember Palamon escapes. Arcita has gone out to a grove to make a wreath for Emily. They meet, and here's the interesting thing. They're ready to kill each other. Arcita is noble enough to say, you have a retreat, reprieve. I will give you a day. I'm going to go get armor. Um, you can choose, and we'll fight. So there's this genuine nobility in both men. He says, I'll go get the armor, and we'll fight. So he, the night passes, he comes back in the morning, the two put on their armor, he allows Palamon to choose, and they fight. Except, here's fortune again, just on that day, Theseus happens to be out on a ride, a hunt, and he sees the two men fighting. Now, can you find, mm -hmm. sorry? Part four starts on page 69. But you're talking about the end of part two, right? I'm talking about where oh. <laughs> um, Theseus comes Page 53 is the end of Theseus having said what he would do. find it in my book. My wheel is this, make a... I want to get to that. Um, what are you trying to find? Where Palamon says, kill me first. It's at the end of uh, page 49. 
Kill me first for holy charity, but kill my fellow too, the same yeah, as me. Yeah, yeah, which, which verse? 49 in our book. Yeah. Um, four pages back from the end. Yeah, look at the page that thus must explain why mighty Theseus found a sudden wish to hunt. Forty-eight. Forty-eight, where? Uh, yeah. Top paragraph. Sure. Okay. Forty-eight. Yeah. So this is when, look at just above. the Now, destiny, that minister general, there it is again, who executes so again and again, down below, whether in war or peace, in hate or love, are governed by a providence above. Theseus just happens to go out at this moment. What's he going to discover? He's going to be out hunting, and he will see these two men trying to kill each other. He'll ride over and see that it's Palamon and Arcite, both of whom were in jail, one of whom was released on condition that he not come back to Athens at forfeit of his life. Um, Palamon's escaped, so both men, according to justice, owe their lives. On the next page, um, before the, the paragraph Palamon answered, Theseus rides up, the first one to speak up is Palamon. Palamon answered quickly and in guilt, O oh, sir, what need of further word or breath? Both of us have deserved to die, to die the death. Two wretched men your captives met in strife, and each of them encumbered with his life is to judge righteously, has been your fashion. Show another of us mercy, show neither of us mercy nor compassion, and kill me. Both of them owe their lives as a matter of justice. He says, um, show neither mercy, kill me first. Now, Hold on, at this point, given what you know of both men, would you choose one of them as a better suitor for Emily? Don't ask me. Karen, who would you choose as a better suitor? Or do you have a choice? Are they both equal in your? They're both equal. Anybody? Oh, okay. Who does Emily want? Huh? Who does Emily want? What did she say? I said, who does Emily want? Who does Emily want? She, she wants not to get married at this point. I'm asking another question. If you had to choose one of these men for her, could you? Well, the first one is saying, he, he's so much pride. Well, see, I'm better because you're going to kill me first. Right? Is that his thing? Well, see, I'm, yeah, first, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be dead, so kill me first. And, and yeah, you can take care of me, but you did me first. A little bit of color. Well, R.C. was very noble in saying, you know, I'll, I'll go get the armor and I'll let you choose which armor you want to use and we'll fight each other. <laughs> and yet, Palman is, is also noble in saying, you know, kill us both and kill me first. I'd say they're both, both yeah. about the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let me give you guilty. my thought, for because obviously there's disagreements here. Right from the beginning, I would have chose Palamon. For this reason, he sees her first, and his love is more instinctively, it's a natural love. Arcetus has to overcome Palamon. He's far more aggressive in the beginning, far, far more aggressive. His god is Mars, and if you remember the temple, the temple was strewn with bodies. The temple for Palamon is Venus. But they, you don't know that yet. Yeah. No, we don't, but I'm just, we'll right. go there. But, well, but er, hold on, hold on, early on, hold on, early on, it's clear that Palamon looks to Venus long before we get to the temples. But How hold, is that clear? Wait, wait, <laughs> go back and read. 
at this point, well, you at know this the point, ending. It's clear. <laughs> no, he's no. Turn away the old oak tree used to be. There's the, both men are noble. Both men are very noble. I don't see him being. I mean, both of them are proud too. But the fact that he would step up and say, "Take my life first is another indication. You'll have to wait, but I mean, it's really interesting, I think, in my mind, when I watch these two men, because in so many ways, when they fought, they fought to a, a draw. They're, they're equal in so many ways. But one of them is inclined to Venus, one to Mars. But, but not at this point. You, but what I'm saying is, my, my contention is that when you read the beginning, if you listen to the two men, um, Palamon sees her first and loves her. He doesn't Bec know if she's a goddess. Hold on, or wait. A woman, hold on. The other hold one on. you said sees her as a woman first. Yeah. As an the, object of desire versus a. Uh, object, just a. Um, so maybe our uh, is more wanting her more just because he doesn't want Palamon. Well, no, here's the, here's the here's courtly romance, courtesy. It involves some element of self-denial. If they were brothers and, and um, loved, if their bond were tighter and pride wasn't a matter, and one man declared his love, I would assume, beginning, that another man, if he fell in love, would be more reticent, would be, would be aware that he owed something to his cousin, even if he loved her. But that isn't the case. He's aggressive right from the beginning and goes at him. So what I'm suggesting here is that already in the beginning, Chaucer has given us hints at the same time that he's made it clear that they seem so alike in so many ways. We know before that temple scene that Palamon's attached to Venus and um, our seat to Mars. That in itself suggests the differences that I'm saying here. So if you look at the characterization, the way he unfolds in the beginning, it's really interesting in that open one, our seat has no scruples about denying his and saying, I love her. So there's a battle immediately. Um, that is, there's a, a much more readiness to have his own will to say. I'm, I'm just suggesting that, that Chaucer is such a subtle portraiture, you know, that what he does. Here, I want to go to the very end, because we're running out of time. When, when the, Chaucer gives a whole scene, a whole section to the um, description of the theater for the reasons I'm suggesting. And you know how massive it is. Because the issues are justice and love. The law and love. I mean, that's, that, that's what's going to be over. It's either, it's either going to lead to a black-white or something else is going to come from it because that's the great issue at the heart of Christianity. Okay? Um, in part three, Palamon prays to Venus, or um, um, Emily prays to Diane, and she makes clear she doesn't want to marry either. Her choice is not to marry. She wants to remain a virgin. And then Arcee prays to Mars, and after his prayers, it's made clear to him that the victory will be his. Now we know earlier in, the, in an earlier section that it was said by Saturn long before we get to the end, Palamon will win. So Chaucer gives it away, but as he unfolds things, he leaves us with these confusions. 
It's said Palamon will win. He gets that from the, we get that from God. Here, Mars says the victory will be yours. So we're back in Boethius's world where these readings of fortune or providence are being given to people, and in both instances, they misread them. Shakespeare's full of this stuff. People misinterpret omens all the time. They, they take as divine things what they want to because it answers their own will. So we've got it here. Turn to the end. I want to I wanna, I wanna try to wrap this up now just quickly. Quickly. Um, at the very end, you know what happens. The battle's set loose. There's 100 men on both sides. Both men have noble kings to help them. Um, a number of men overcome Palamon, and he's taken to the stakes. He's defeated. And Theseus makes it clear going into the battle, he doesn't want anybody killed. He's not going to allow anybody to kill. Death may happen by accident, but that's, he, he doesn't want anybody to die. Palamon's wounded, he's taken to the side. Arce sees he's the victor. Um, Theseus calls a halt to the game. Immediately, he says, injustice, the games are over. Now I have to perform an act of justice. Arcee's the winner, he's the victor. Palamon's lost. So the blood feud, over. Arcee's prancing around on his horse. The horse shies, he falls off, and gets fatally wounded. And you know what happens then. And I want to read this quickly. On, oh God, Doc, help me with the lines. Hmm. At the very end, in um, wait on that. Um, our seed is dying. He's on his deathbed. Um, Theseus has taken our seat back, or I mean Palamon, back to his palace. He's on his deathbed. I'm looking at the paragraph that says, but how they made the funeral fires flame. It's followed by all these lines that begin with nor, 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 nor. But how they made the funeral flames fly? Yeah, right. Where is it? Bottom of 81. Okay, here, can I hear, have you, so we're there, are we, how do we, okay, so, here, so, our seed is dead, or I mean, Palamon's dead, or, sorry, our seed is dead, right? Wait, sorry, yeah, our seed is dead. They've created this big funeral prize. Chaucer makes it clear that they're looking back to Hector, for those of you who've done the Iliad. So, from Homer's perspective, from a, from a pagan perspective, this is a tragedy, this very noble man died for love. All the women are grieving. They're tearing their breasts. They've got this big funeral. And Chaucer's response was, almost two paragraphs later, it was an accident. He does everything he can to pass this off. And then he goes through this section where he goes, but how they made, now I want you to hear this because you've got to hear the, so, but how they made the funeral fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name. Oh, creep. a man just died. Oak, tree, birch, aspen, poplar, tooth, hex and alder, it goes on and on. I lack the time. So, I don't have the time to tell you this, and I won't tell you. So he goes, nor will I do this, nor will I do this, nor shall I say how in the sudden light of the unwanted still, the delta, are you all following right, with right. these nors? Yeah, right. Now keep going. Many flower, garland in the air, and breathing incense in the sweet mirror. Nor how our seed lay among all. 
A man's dead, nor Alcida lay among it all, nor the wealth and splendor of his Paul, nor yet how... So I'm not going to tell you all this stuff. And he goes on and on and on and on with all this stuff. This body's there, not ready to be burned up, she threw it in. Nor of the cups and wine and milk and blood, nor others poured upon the fiery flood. Now hear the rhymes too, because all this stuff is rhyming. Left-handedly went thrice and thrice about the flaming tire, and shouted as they drove, and thrice they clashed their spears about the grove, nor yet relate how thrice the ladies wet, nor who supported Emily and kept pace with her home. What's he doing? He's telling you, he's telling you, and he's not doing it. What's he doing? I'm not going to do all this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And he keeps doing it. Yes. This man's dead. Everybody's weak. Not everybody. Everybody's weak. Why is Chaucer doing this? What is Lady Philosophy's response to Boethius when he knows he's going to die? Is she grieving and weeping and wailing and crying and wringing her hands? And what, what Chaucer's doing is trying to inculcate a sense, a spirit of detachment, because without it, this would be a tragedy. This is a, he's treating it comically. Why? Because nothing happens that God doesn't allow. So is our trust in him, or are we going to get caught up in our passions and grieve and wring our hands? And This is the comic spirit. Well, put it differently. Could Homer have done this? Does Homer do this at the end of the Iliad when Hector dies? No. This is a comic response exactly in the line of Lady Philosophy and Prometheus. What does, what does Theseus at the end say? The, the paragraph begins, when all were seated there and hushed the plain, do you all have a hush the place? That's 83. Go down a few lines. The first great cause and mover of all above, this is how it lands, and this is Theseus making this statement. The first great cause and mover of all above, when first he made that fairest change. She goes on to do what Boethius took a whole book to do that shows that the first cause is behind all of it. Who's the first cause? God. And look at the lines. Said he, established this wretched world, appointed ways, seasons, durations, certain length of days, to all that's engendered here below, past which predestined hour none may go. Every man is going to die. Stop crying. Yeah. We're all going to die. Keep going. To change and will corrupt, and therefore his in wise foreknowledge establish the decree that species of all things and the progression of seed and growth continue by succession and not eternally. This is no lie. Any man can see who has an eye. I don't know if you can hear the comic tone, but any stupid person can see. Yes. I mean, everything he's doing is to help us step back to get a hold of our passions because they're in control. Into the dust for all things have an end. Keep going. There is no help for it. All take the track. For all must die, and there's none comes back. <laughs> Even the rhymes make it funny. Um, and here's where it all goes. Who orders this but Jupiter the king, the prince and cause of all and everything, converting all things back into the source from which they were derived, to which they court. And against that, no creature here alive, whatever his degree may hope to strive. Then hold it wise. For so it seems to me to make a virtue of necessity 
take in good part what we may not eschew, especially whatever things are due to all of us. So long as we keep going through life thinking, it's due to me. I didn't, I didn't deserve this. Um, to make a virtue of necessity, and hold on, you know what happens after this. He brings Palamon back and asks Emily to wed because by doing that, um, Thebes and Athens are united. But here's, here's the thing that I want to stress. What happens over the course of this story is that nobody who acts on their desires to have what they want gets what they want. The condition of love in this story is giving up yourself. It's only when... Um, now remember, the gods told our seat he would win. Palamon never knew, but we know from what was said in that prayer that he would win. But we didn't know how. He lost the battle. He had to give her up. Our seat won. He died. He had to give her up. Emily had to give up her wish to have things the way she wanted. That was the condition of love. What he's showing us is something the pagans could have never known. That the condition for bringing law, justice, and mercy together is giving up one's will. That's the condition for loving. So what we're showing, what, what Chaucer is showing in the refounding of Athens, the beginning of democracy, which is far more Catholic than the, the royal cities, is that the condition for real justice is love. But it's a love that asks that each person gives up his own will to, to make a to make a virtue of necessity. So no matter what happens, we're supposed to try to bring good out of us the best we can. Let me stop. Sorry, it's, any questions? This is an extraordinary story. And Boethius is everywhere in it. Any, any questions? Nope. Okay. Midsummer Night's Dream. What is Shakespeare going to do with the Theseus story? Listen, I'm saying this. I really want everybody, all of you, to read this. Because the, the, and, and the, because the question is, how is Shakespeare going to deal with this differently from Chaucer? Chaucer's looking back to medieval Catholicism. Chester, to, or I mean, Shakespeare's looking forward to a modern world. Thank you again, Thank you, Robert. Oh. Oh, you're right. Thank you. Yeah, when they're doing that. But this I got. This I really oh, want. Oh, oh, oh. um, what did I want to say? Someone, would you like to take my own? Did you like that? I did like it, so I don't want to take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take half a piece home. If you want to, can you just take a half a piece, Doc? Just take the whole thing. And, you know, <laughs> What's good? I thought you meant our play, oh, our story. Oh, it is, it is, but you know, I'm looking at it. Here's your But you're supposed to just look at it in its way. That's what we're supposed to do. When we get to Shakespeare, we'll see him do it in his way. Okay. Oh, yeah. All righty. Oh, good. It's kind of doing the same thing I'm doing now, but just bigger scale. Nice. Yeah. Okay, what else? Not my point. Joshua. Wait. 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 Wait.